0: Chapter Thirty of the Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Obstacles, the impediments that can arise to baffle a great and swelling career, are strange and various. In some instances, all the cross waves of life must be cut by the strong swimmer. With other personalities, there is a chance or force that happily allies itself with them or they quite unconsciously ally themselves with it, and find that there is a tide that bears them on. Divine will? Not necessarily. There is no understanding of it. Guardian spirits? There are many who so believe, to their utter undoing. Witness Macbeth. An unconscious drift in the direction of right, virtue, duty? These are banners of mortal manufacture. Nothing is proved. All is permitted. Not long after Cowperwood's accession to control of the West Side, for instance, a contest took place between his corporation and a citizen by the name of Redmond Purdy, a real estate investor, property trader, and money lender, which set Chicago by the ears. The LaSalle and Washington Street tunnels were now in active service, but because of the great north and south area of the West Side, necessitating the cabling of Van Buren Street and Blue Island Avenue, there was need for a third tunnel somewhere south of Washington Street, preferably at Van Buren Street, because the business heart was thus more directly reached. Cowperwood was willing and anxious to build this tunnel, though he was puzzled how to secure from the city a right-of-way under Van Buren Street, where a bridge loaded with heavy traffic now swung. There were all sorts of complications. In the first place, the consent of the War Department at Washington had to be secured in order to tunnel under the river at all. Secondly, the excavation, if directly under the bridge, might prove an intolerable nuisance, necessitating the closing or removal of the bridge. Owing to the critical, not to say hostile attitude of the newspapers, which, since the La Salle and Washington tunnel grants, were following his every move with a searchlight. Cowperwood decided not to petition the city for privileges in this case, but instead to buy the property rights of sufficient land just north of the bridge, where the digging of the tunnel could proceed without interference. The piece of land most suitable for this purpose, a lot 150 by 150, lying a little way from the river bank and occupied by a seven-story loft building, was owned by the previously mentioned Redmond Purdy, a long, thin, angular, dirty person, who wore celluloid collars and cuffs and spoke with a nasal intonation. Cowperwood had the customary overtures made by seemingly disinterested parties endeavoring to secure the land at a fair price. But Purdy, who was as stingy as a miser, and as incisive as a rat-trap, had caught wind of the proposed tunnel-scheme. He was all alive, for a fine profit. No, 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 he declared, over and over, when approached by the representatives of Mr. Sylvester Toomey, Cowperwood's ubiquitous land agent. I don't want to sell. Go away. Mr. Sylvester Toomey was finally at his wit's end, and complained to Cowperwood, who at once, sent for those noble beacons of dark and stormy waters, General Van Sickle and the Honorable Kent Barrows McKibben. The general was now becoming a little dolty, and Cowperwood was thinking of pensioning him, but McKibben was in his prime, smug, handsome, deadly, smooth. After talking it over with Mr. Toomey, they returned to Cowperwood's office with a promising scheme. The Honorable Nahum Dickensheets, one of the judges of the State Court of Appeals and a man long since attached by methods which need not here be described to Cowperwood's star had been persuaded to bring his extensive technical knowledge to bear on the emergency. At his suggestion, the work of digging the tunnel was at once begun, first at the East or Franklin Street end, then, after eight months digging, at the West or Canal Street end, The shaft was actually sunk some thirty feet back of Mr. Purdy's building, between it and the river, while that gentleman watched, with a quizzical gleam in his eye, this defiant procedure. He was sure that when it came to the necessity of annexing his property, the North and West Chicago Street railways would be obliged to pay through the nose. "'Well, I'll be cussed,' he frequently observed to himself, for he could not see how his exaction of a pound of flesh was to be evaded, and yet he felt strangely restless at times. Finally, when it became absolutely necessary for Cowperwood to secure, without further delay, this coveted strip, he sent for its occupant, who called, in pleasant anticipation, of a profitable conversation. This should be worth a small fortune to him. "'Mr. Purdy,' observed Cowperwood, glibly, "'You have a piece of land on the other side of the river that I need. "'Why don't you sell it to me? "'Can't we fix this up now in some amicable way?' He smiled while Purdy, cash-shrewd, wolfish glances about the place, wondering how much he could really hope to exact. The building, with all its interior equipment, land and all, was worth in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand dollars. "'Why should I sell? The building is a good building.' It is as useful to me as it would be to you. I'm making money out of it.' "'Quite true,' replied Cowperwood. "'But I am willing to pay you a fair price for it. A public utility is involved. This tunnel will be a good thing for the west side and any other land you may own over there. "'With what I will pay you, you can buy more land in that neighborhood or elsewhere and make a good thing out of it. We need to put this tunnel just where it is.' or I wouldn't trouble to argue with you. "'That's just it,' replied Purdy fixedly. "'You've gone ahead and dug your tunnel without consulting me, and now you expect me to get out of the way. Well, I don't see that I'm called on to get out of there just to please you.' "'But I'll pay you a fair price. How much will you pay me? How much do you want?' Mr. Purdy scratched a fox-like ear. One million dollars one million dollars exclaimed cowperwood don't you think that's a little steep mr purdy no replied purdy sagely it's not any more than it's worth cowperwood sighed i'm sorry he replied meditatively but this is really too much wouldn't you take three hundred thousand in cash now and consider this thing closed one million replied purdy looking sternly at the ceiling "'Very well, Mr. Purdy,' replied Cowperwood. "'I'm very sorry. "'It's plain to me that we can't do business, as I had hoped. "'I'm willing to pay you a reasonable sum. "'But what you ask is far too much, preposterous. "'Don't you think you'd better reconsider? "'We might move the tunnel even yet.' million dollars,' said Purdy. "'It can't be done, Mr. Purdy. "'It isn't worth it. "'Why won't you be fair? "'Call it $325,000 cash.' And my check tonight. I wouldn't take five or six hundred thousand dollars if you were to offer it to me, Mr. Cowperwood, tonight or any other time. I know my rights. Very well, then, replied Cowperwood, that's all I can say. If you won't sell, you won't sell. Perhaps you'll change your mind later. Mr. Purdy went out, and Cowperwood called in his lawyers and his engineers. One Saturday afternoon, a week or two later, when the building in question had been vacated for the day, a company of three hundred laborers with wagons, picks, shovels, and dynamite sticks arrived. By sundown of the next day, which being Sunday, was a legal holiday with no courts open, or sitting to issue injunctions, this comely structure, the private property of Mr. Redmond Purdy, was completely razed and a large excavation substituted in its stead the gentleman of the celluloid cuffs and collars when informed about nine o'clock of this same sunday morning that his building had been almost completely removed was naturally greatly perturbed a portion of the wall was still standing when he arrived hot and excited and the police were appealed to but strange to say this was of little avail for they were shown a writ of injunction issued by the court of highest jurisdiction, presided over by the Honorable Nahum Dickensheets, which restrained all and sundry from interfering. Subsequently, on demand of another court, this remarkable document was discovered to have disappeared. The contention was that it had never really existed or been produced at all. The demolition and digging proceeded, then began a scurrying of lawyers, to the door of one friendly judge after another. There were apoplectic cheeks, blazing eyes, and gasps for breath, while the enormity of the offense was being noised about. Law is law, however. Procedure is procedure, and no writ of injunction was either issuable or returnable on a legal holiday when no courts were sitting. Nevertheless, by three o'clock in the afternoon, an obliging magistrate was found who consented to issue an injunction, staying this terrible crime. By this time, however, the building was gone, the excavation complete. It remained merely for the West Chicago Street Railway Company to secure an injunction vacating the first injunction, praying that its rights, privileges, liberties, etc., be not interfered with, and so creating a contest which naturally threw the matter into the State Court of Appeals where it could safely lie. For several years there were numberless injunctions, writs of errors, doubts, motions to reconsider, threats to carry the matter from the state to the federal courts on a matter of constitutional privilege and the like. The affair was finally settled out of court, for Mr. Purdy, by this time, was a more sensible man. In the meantime, however, the newspapers had been given full details of the transaction and a storm of words against Cowperwood ensued. But more disturbing than the Redmond-Purdy incident was the rivalry of a new Chicago street-railway company. It appeared first as an idea in the brain of one James Fervonvale Wilson, a determined young Westerner from California, and developed by degrees into consents and petitions from fully two-thirds of the residents of various streets in the extreme southwest section of the city, where it was proposed the new line should be located. This same James Fervenvale Wolson, being an ambitious person, was not to be so easily put down. Besides the consent and petitions, which Cowperwood could not easily get away from him, he had a new form of traction, then being tried out in several minor cities, a form of electric propulsion by means of an overhead wire and a traveling pole, which was said to be very economical and to give service better than cables and cheaper even than horses. Cowperwood had heard all about this new electric system some time before, and had been studying it for several years with the greatest interest, since it promised to revolutionize the whole business of street railroading. However, having so recently completed his excellent cable system, He did not see that it was advisable to throw it away. The trolley was as yet too much of a novelty. Certainly, it was not advisable to have it introduced into Chicago until he was ready to introduce it himself, first on his outlying feeder lines, he thought, then perhaps generally. But before he could take suitable action against Wilson, that engaging young upstart, who was possessed of high-power imagination, and a gift of gab, had allied himself with such interested investors as Truman Leslie MacDonald, who saw here a heaven-sent opportunity of molting Cowperwood, and Jordan Jules, once the president of the North Chicago Gas Company, who had lost money through Cowperwood in the gas war. Two better instruments of goading a man whom they considered an enemy could not well be imagined. Truman Leslie with his dark, waspish, mistrustful, jealous eyes, and his slim, vital body, and Jordan Jules, short, rotund, sandy, a sickly crop of thin, oily, light hair growing down over his coat collar, his forehead and crown glisteningly bald, his eyes a-seeking, searching, revengeful blue. They, in turn, brought in Samuel Blackman, once president of the Southside Gas Company, Sunderland Sled, of local railroad management and stock investment fame, and Norrie Sims, president of the Douglas Trust Company, who, however, was little more than a fiscal agent. The general feeling was that Cowperwood's defensive tactics, which consisted in having the city council refuse to act, could be easily met. "'Well, I think we can soon fix that,' exclaimed young MacDonald, one morning at a meeting. "'We ought to be able to smoke them out a little publicity will do it. He appealed to his father, the editor of the Enquirer, but the latter refused to act for the time being, seeing that his son was interested. MacDonald, enraged at the do-nothing attitude of the council, invaded that body and demanded of Alderman Dowling, still leader, why this matter of the Chicago general ordinances was still lying unconsidered. Mr. Dowling, a large, mushy, placid man with blue eyes, an iron frame, and a beefy smile, vouchsafed the information that, although he was chairman of the Committee on Streets and Alleys, he knew nothing about it. "'I haven't been paying much attention to things lately,' he replied. Mr. MacDonald went to see the remaining members of the same committee. They were noncommittal. They would have to look into the matter. Somebody claimed that there was a flaw in the petitions.' Evidently, there was crooked work here somewhere. Cowperwood was to blame, no doubt. MacDonald conferred with Blackman and Jordan Jules, and it was determined that the council should be harried into doing its duty. This was a legitimate enterprise. A new and better system of traction was being kept out of the city. Shyhart, since he was offered an interest, and since there was considerable chance of his being able to dominate the new enterprise, agreed that the ordinances ought to be acted upon. In consequence, there was a renewed hubbub in the newspapers. It was pointed out through Schryhart's Chronicle, through Hysop's and Merrill's papers, and through the Enquirer, that such a situation was intolerable. If the dominant party, at the behest of so sinister an influence as Cowperwood, was to tie up all outside traction legislation, There could be but one thing left, an appeal to the voters of the city to turn the rascals out. No party could survive such a record of political trickery and financial jugglery. McKenty, Dowling, Cowperwood, and others were characterized as unreasonable obstructionists and debasing influences. But Cowperwood merely smiled. These were the caterwaulings of the enemy. Later when young MacDonald threatened to bring legal action to compel the council to do its duty, Cowperwood and his associates were not so cheerful. A mandamus proceeding, however futile, would give the newspapers greater opportunity for chatter. Moreover, a city election was drawing near. However, McKenty and Cowperwood were by no means helpless. They had offices, jobs, funds, a well-organized party system, the saloons, the dives, in those dark chambers where at late hours ballot boxes were incontinently stuffed did cowperwood share personally in all this not at all or mckenty no in good tweed and fine linen they frequently conferred in the offices of the chicago trust company the president's office of the north chicago street railway system and mr cowperwood's library no dark scenes were ever enacted there, but just the same, when the time came, the shyheart sims MacDonald editorial combination did not win. Mr. McKenty's party had the votes. A number of the most flagrantly debauched aldermen, it is true, were defeated, but what is an alderman here and there? The newly elected ones, even in the face of pre-election promises and vows, could be easily suborned or convinced. So the anti-Cowperwood element was just where it was before, but the feeling against him was much stronger, and considerable sentiment generated in the public at large that there was something wrong with the Cowperwood method of street-railway control. End of chapter 30